back to the information revolution. If you're watching this as a video, you'll see I'm sitting here on my own, which is a bit unusual. For the first time ever, we split our conversation we had with Matt Moore into two episodes. So this is actually part two of a conversation that kicked off um, two weeks ago now. And uh, no, we haven't been sitting here for two weeks, uh, but we recorded one session and chopped it in half. So please do refer back to that first half if you um, want to get a bit more context for what we're talking about today, although I suspect a lot of this will stand alone as well. Um, so you will hear from me, Michael Upton, an information management consultant in Wellington, New Zealand, uh, Judy Verno, information architect also in Wellington, Carl Melrose, consultant in South Australia, and Matt Moore in Sydney, Australia. Let's get back to it. Cheers. To go right back to where we kind of started this, Matt, um, um, we, we obviously have been talking about the kind of more uh, sorry, in previous episodes, we've been talking more about the kind of pointy end of, well, how would we value things? I guess I'm interested in your thoughts on um, perhaps how you spot where an organisation is at on that continuum. Well, in, in terms of how it makes decisions or in terms of how it values information, Michael? Well, I think the latter, personally. Yeah, yeah. And, cool. and, and to some extent... Um, the value in valuing so, <laughs> get meta. So you know, how, have... how do you determine how worthwhile that activity is going to be in your current context? So I think there's some really interesting things here to tease out, right? Obviously, Doug Laney's book, Infonomics, has got a heads up a couple of times already. Strong recommend to the listenership. One thing I would stress is the first few chapters left me a bit cold. I was like, I've heard all this before. And then it really cranks into gear about five or six chapters in. And it's like he's it's it's a, it's like he's delivering like like crazy idea after deep insight, and it's it's a killer, right? So strong recommend to the and audience. I have to admit that the first time I read Infonomics, I uh, stopped at about chapter five <laughs> because I was just sitting there going, "This is just everything I've heard before," and yeah. I was bored. And then you know, of course, talk to Matt, and it's like, "No, no, you need to you need to read chapter six and onwards." So stick with it. Yeah, 100% wow. right. And he has, like, he kind of goes deep into this space. I'm going to sort of give a slightly different take, I think, to Doug's and to, and to James's. All right. So one thing I just want to talk about is, so we have a very interesting case study of valuation going on right now in the US, in the New York courts between the state of New York and Donald Trump. All right. And here we're not talking about intangible assets, like we're actually talking about buildings, we're talking about physical property, mm. right? And yet we have two very different valuations for this physical property. We have one that's been given to the IRS, the tax authorities, and one that was given to, given to banks in order to secure loans, right? The same asset valued two very different ways, okay? Now, regardless of the legality of these actions or not, that's a matter for the courts to decide. What I think this highlights is the importance of context, right, for valuation. And when you're talking about valuation, the critical question, and I think this came up in your previous conversations, is valuable to who, right? Something is not valuable, like, in and of itself. Like, value is, value is something that is, a, is, a, is, a con is an intersubjective concept that human beings create. Right. So I think one question we have to ask is, who is this information valuable to? Right. And this like and, we, and this will have multiple dimensions. So I'll, I'll give a little example. Just just 
just from a knowledge management program I was involved with an Australian regulator many years ago, okay? So a new chairman came in, everybody had to justify their existence, okay? So me and the, the KM director, we sat down and we went, okay, like our boss was actually the CFO, effectively. So the, the, the business case we put together for him was very much about you know, cost savings, right? This is the amount we spend. This is the amount of, of, of efficiencies and cost savings we deliver to the business. Therefore, this is our value. All right. Then we went into a conversation with the chairman. Didn't ask us anything about that. He said, how many external people are involved in your program? Because his priority was to open up the regulator and make it more responsive to the industry it was operating in. Right. And understand the markets it was trying to regulate better. Okay. So we said, oh, about 40% of us, of, of the work we did involve, could you make it 50? Sure thing, Chairman. Of course we could. Right. So what that, what that reinforced to me is, depending on who you talk to, you have different definitions and measures of value and even completely different metrics. All right. So who you're talking to matters. Right. And then the, the, the context in which you're doing this matters. And I think the challenge that we have, like, is so we are quite good at value or human beings are quite good at valuing things we buy and sell regularly. OK, so there are market where there are markets. Effectively, there are markets for houses, there are markets for shares, there are markets for all kinds of things. OK, there isn't really markets for the information that we manage. OK, so. And again, I think there's, there's an interesting, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent, but there's an interesting analogy here in the world of marketing with brand valuations. Okay. So brand valuations have sort of been going on for about 30 odd years. Okay. So firms like Interbrand and then Millwood Brown, right? And they would say, okay, this brand is worth X billion dollars. Right. Now, a gentleman called Mark Ritson who swears a lot and is a professor of marketing, basically picked a fight with the brand valuation companies and said, hey, guys, how come when you're valuing the same brand, do you come up with three radically different numbers that are out by four or five thousand percent? OK, so this is an area where valuation has been going on for decades and we still can't get it right. OK, the interesting footnote to this is, what one company called Marketables did was they actually looked at M&A transactions involving brands. They looked at how the imputed like valuation from an actual transaction in the market and then compared it to the valuations done by these companies. OK, and again, still out by by, you know, kind of like not orders of magnitude, but definitely multiples. OK, so I think even in the value of the world of brand valuation, which I think is probably more mature than information valuation, it's still a bit of a crapshoot, frankly. All right. So I think so. This is just sort of set in the scene. So when we then talk about valuing information, the value is to whom, right? And I think that requires that we understand what they're trying to do from an organisational perspective, and the other things they value. Right. So and again, when we when we were valuing, when we were doing this piece of work with that knowledge management program, the question we asked to people was, if this program disappears tomorrow, what is the impact on you? Mm, Which is exactly. a fantastic question for like unearthing the value that you deliver. Right. 
because like in most cases, people said, okay, so the, is the program being cancelled? No, no, it's just a hypothetical, okay? Oh, thank heavens, right? And they'd say, well, you know, we'd be able to continue what we're doing, but this is the impact it would have in terms of like productivity and all those kinds of things, right? And I think part of the challenge you will have is the, the in terms of the different functions you're working in with the business, they will have their own maturities in terms of being able to measure and value their own activities. Right now, one area where it's actually quite easy to do this is contact centers. Right, so contact centers, everything is metric out of out, you know, to the, it's like like you know to the nth degree. Okay, average call handling time, you know. Um, like recalls, all this kind of stuff, right? So again, one company I worked for sold a knowledge and information management tool aimed at contact centers. And we were actually able to get like good ROI numbers because in that heavily metric environment, we were able to go before and after. There you go, okay? We can actually point to some numbers. But one of the reasons we were able to do that is that environment is very heavily measured, mm. okay? Right? And it's, it's probably the only part of a business that is as heavily measured as, say, some manufacturing environments, where in those environments, you can sort of get those hard numbers. The issue you have in many organizations is nobody really knows what contributes to productivity. It's almost, and, like, and, and, <coughs> it's almost like the underpants gnomes. Remember the underpants gnomes from South Park? Like, okay. underpants, big question mark, profit. Okay, that is most business functions understanding of of how they deliver value. And the, it was a, a point that James made, and a point that I know I've made before is, you know, how do you actually understand this stuff? Well, you've got to go and measure it yourself, which you know generally is like time and motion level hmm. type stuff. Look, and I think. And again, I think to his point, his point is everybody hates time and emotion studies, which is partially true, unless it's the people doing it themselves, right? So if it's being done to people, they will actively subvert that, right? However, lots of people own Fitbits. Lots of people are quite happy to quantify themselves <laughs> if they own that data. So again, I think the if you if you're trying to impose measurement on people they will resist and they will find ways to give you what they think you want to hear to make you go away whereas if they actually own that measurement process and are in control of it they're much more comfortable with that mm. um it's one comment i would make yeah nice there's an aspect of this that um i keep coming back to which is also that i mean you know time and motion stuff is measuring uh efficiency versus effectiveness would you say like it's it's measuring how quickly we can achieve something or mm. um how well we can use our resources to achieve an outcome how how many um, of something gets yeah. done yeah. yeah well i mean for, for for me the reason i'm always interested in time and motion studies is because i think that if we actually you know ev everybody quotes gartner or idc who have you know at some point said oh you know the average knowledge worker spends xyz amount of time looking for the right yeah document. yeah and every and every executive manager looks at that and goes, "Oh no, my team's way more efficient than that." Unless, of course, they're new in the organisation, and then they go, "Yeah, no, this team's crap because the last manager didn't know what they were doing." But if unless you actually bring them some numbers that are from their own team that have been measured, that managers in their team will say, "Yeah, we we measured that, and that's how long my team is spending looking for things. That's why we can't get things done in the amount of time you want us to." I don't think they believe them. Go on, Matt. Well, I think, I think in some cases they don't actually care, 
right? Yeah, you got to be so, careful. Obviously, context matters. Some organisations, you know, they just want more people, and so the less efficient they are, well, the more people they can get for the process. But also, like like the classic the classic business case for an ERP system for like a like a finance system is we save X amount of time, right? X amount of minutes per transaction. The manager will then go, okay, can I actually realise that benefit? Does that mean that I can fire a quarter of my staff if I buy your system? Uh, right. So it's interesting. Yes. Like, like, and in some cases, the answer is yes. In some cases, the answer is, well, actually, um, we don't know. And in some cases, the answer is we can put them on higher value work. Where I think Judy and Michael are potentially trucking is the quantity versus quality distinction, mm. right? And how we talk about the quality of outputs, right? And again, I think that, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. And again, I think many different parts of organizations vary dramatically in terms of how well they measure quality. Yeah, I'm sure that's absolutely true. I mean, there are some areas which are really kind of blindingly obvious, really, like you mentioned ERP, and I was thinking customer customer relationship management systems. They can see that they're having real trouble tracking information about who's visited which customer, for example, or which, you know which partner uh, and so they know that they need to manage their information much better around that so they don't get two different groups of people going to the same person that kind of thing I mean and, and, that, and that's, think... that's a very popular um, aspect of, of good good management of information and making sure that it's quality because it's up to date and accurate yeah, absolutely. And I think if you if we tie this back to kind of you described this as a sort of a hyper rationalist approach, Matt, that if we're trying to understand what's the data around that, like that could be um measuring the outcomes of the last time we failed to um act in a coordinated way with that customer or something like that. You know, tracking outcomes through well, what what was the impact of doing that? And, you know, and measuring all of those things, which is really complicated compared to what's the person sitting in the office doing? How quickly did they answer something? How often is this field being completed? Those kinds of things. But I, I think I that that's, that's the kind of measurement of quality that I feel like we haven't really touched on. Um, James mentioned numbers last time, as in dollar numbers, you know, like increases of productivity and, you know, this this being a return of however many dollars, which... That, that sounds fantastic to me um, in, a, in a sort of public value setting of, you know, always working with government clients, thinking, you know, that um, what what happens if you don't have the right information in certain contexts is that you're going to impact other people's ability to make decisions or your own ability to make decisions. We can go back to good old Daikar once again. You're going to create results how do you measure those results at the end of the die car thing and say okay the quality of information and the quality of the systems and the broadest sense of systems that allowed us to access that information and use it you know to to develop knowledge to take action to create results like how that's the stuff that i feel like when we talk about time and motion or we talk about you know number of transactional things that occurred i, I don't feel like we're touching that um, and I and I think um, that's not to downplay the value of being able to basically um, pitch pitch those things. I think it just comes back to knowing value for whom and what's the context in which we're trying to value stuff. 
I'm sure it would help some managers to be able to put to them those kind of um, efficiency gains and, and so on. But I think there's also this other conversation um, that could also be really meaningful around like, um, what if you make a crap piece of public policy because the inputs are all rubbish? You know, like what's the impact of that? I'll stop. <laughs> That's a really good point, Michael. I think the, the, the issue I come back to is this isn't just an issue for us, right? This is a systemic problem that we have, right? So we are bad at understanding, at tracking the impacts of what we do. Now, the classic case of this in organizations is there will be a business case put together for a project. The project will be run. At the end of the project, everybody is knackered and exhausted and hates it, right? It's passed over to BAU, or business as usual, and then the benefits the, the 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 benefits identified in the business case are never tracked, right? Yeah, we've talked about right? benefit realization a lot on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's one of the areas that everyone skips that we need to do better on. And, and it's yeah. a, and it's a systemic problem, and it's not unique to information management, right? So I no, think, but, I think but information I, management could be unique if they started doing it and started making it. Well, you know, I think. Like, I think in the country of the blind, the one-eyed woman is queen, Carl. Right? So I think a little bit goes a long way, right? And I think, I think the other thing that Michael was saying that I agree with is, like, I'm very much interested in actual business outcomes, right? And we, if we've got Tom, we might talk a little bit about Aswath Damodaran and what he has to say about that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is one of the reasons too we use the diacar model or, or we we sorry sorry everybody i was speaking for you but it's one of the reasons i always bring every things back to the diacar model because the first thing you've got to do is sit down and say what results are we getting you know what level of quality are we achieving through this process what level of quality do we want and what was responsible for you know creating the, the crap level of quality output that we got you know the crap result that we got you know did we take the right action or are we failing at this because we've got this key knowledge here and we've got it spending four hours a day looking for you know this the, the piece of information that it needs to make a decision about this thing and so it's just starting to you know these people this knowledge they're just starting to use rules of thumb to make this decision instead of using the information that they should have that kind of thing so i think the i think the interesting thing here right so um let's go back to the sales examples and that's quite interesting so yes having a single view of the customer and customer data and up-to-date clean customer data very very important and you can actually start to tie that back to things like customer sat right and then churn and then cross sell upsell, right? Mm. And what's interesting about again that environment is now it's like most sales forces now record all their sales calls using tools like Gong, right? We've never had more information, right? But we're not necessarily using it and getting the value out of it. So again, I think even with other projects that have been run, there are there are actually sort of to use a jargon term, there's how, like we've we've like how do we not waste money? Value realization. How do we realize the value of other projects we've done because we haven't actually deployed that information to improve what we do? I think the interesting thing for information professionals here is the skill set you need to do that. So you need business knowledge, you need process knowledge, you need to work with data and analytics people, mm. right? So like. Like some of the core things that you have, like, you know, say around information analysis, taxonomy skills, right? Really, really important. 
but like you need to grow the base of your skills or work with people from other disciplines to deliver that value. This is not a job for loners, right? This is a team sport Mm. that we're engaged here. Okay. Mm. So yeah, I completely agree. We find ourselves in violent agreement. How how boring. I, I, I did I delivered a presentation at the Rimpen conference a couple of years ago, which was recovering the strategic power of, of, of records management. And, you know, the basic underlying thesis of it was that, you know, we we we, we mostly have records management as a backward-looking discipline at the moment. You know, what have we done in the past? But, you know, what we need to do is flip around and start using it as this tool to predict the future. And, you know, I brought in the DICAR model and some ideas about quality specification and and, and things that we've talked about a lot. But I got a really good question, and I think I remember who it was from, but I'm not going to mention them because I don't want to out them. But it was a really good question at the end about, so what does the skill set for, you know, records management people look like into the future? And, you know, I, I didn't I didn't have a good answer for it. But, you know, we went around the audience for a bit, and the sort of general conclusion we came from was exactly what you just said, basically, that it, that it includes a lot more business and process mm. knowledge. And so, mm. you know, the, the records management person of the future looks a little bit more like a BA. Yeah, than, definitely. You know, a business analyst for yeah. people who don't know the term. A business analyst, and it's not a Bachelor of Arts, a business analyst, um, than maybe what we currently have. And it's actually funny because I'm starting to see – people in records management um, that are very good tipping over into BA roles. But that BA role is staying within the records or information management team. It's one in particular who, you know, spent five or six years recently as a as the as the ECM lead for the university that he was at. And then all of a sudden he's a business analyst. And I just think that kind of thing is really interesting. May may one channel Arnold Schwarzenegger for a moment? No, <laughs> uh, please don't. Get out. Get out. <laughs> so, so I think it is very important for again information management professionals to make sure they don't like just stay in their office, but they get out and they work in different functions. I'd also really like to like to see a lot of. Um, Oh, you know, um, secondments, okay? Mm-hmm. So seconding information people into the business or, or into different parts of the business, right? And then also having people from other function, uh, other functions actually seconded into the records team or the information team or the knowledge team. Yeah, that would you be know, good. It, it's interesting too because this is one of the things That's that I, you know, talking to lots of old, old records people, you know, I – one of the things I did when I came into the industry was I just went and talked to everybody who'd been in the industry for a long time to get a try and get a sense of where the industry had been and where and where it was going. And the, uh, there were a lot of people, and and when I say a lot, you know, it's probably ten to twelve people that I that I I can think of who talked about how when they started in records they were they were what were they doing they they were either on like a file cart which was literally going around collecting files and and distributing files and the tea all that well no there was no there was no tea on the cart but uh, <sighs> but but no but but this this exercise of being on the file cart the thing that they said was amazing about that was that they started to get a real sense of what the organization did 
all of the different business activities that, you know, so we've kind of, I feel like we've gone from that where people are out in the organisation and really understanding what information people are using, what they're doing with it, what the organisation's doing. And now we kind of, maybe we have this, we, we sort of understand it at a function activity level, you know, just enough to to be able to read the, the disposal schedule and sort of understand what some of those things are. But I feel like we we don't grok the organisation anymore. There you go. There's a there's a good good Silicon Valley term. Um, you got to feel it, man. You got to yeah. feel it. You got to go out there. Like if if the aircon's dodgy, if you're out and if if you're out with a field team and it's raining. Right, and they're sort of like trying to sort out stuff on their, you know, on their phones or their mobile devices. If the paper's all wet, right, you, you, in a sense, you sort of you have to, you have to consult within the organisation, but you've got to go out there and you've actually got to, like, feel it with all your senses, not just mm. understand it at an intellectual level. I mean, it's a big thing in Lean too, right? That's one of the things that Lean always says you must do. You know, the term from Lean is Genshi Genbutsu, which is um, actual place, actual thing. And it really just meant, you know, some people interpret it as go see, which basically means just, you know, don't sit in your office and kind of get people to tell you. Actually go and stand there on the production line with people and watch them do this thing to see how what they're doing is hard, what doesn't yeah, work, which, what does work. Which goes back to a very early podcast, I think, that we did, which was saying exactly that, really. You need to get out there and talk to people and really understand what it is they do so that you can say, and how can I help you do that better? Mm. Or, you know, how can I help you to feel more comfortable doing that or whatever it is? Mm. It's so simple at the end of it, isn't it? Matt, you were going to talk about Aswath Damodaran before. Oh, yeah. So let me just briefly introduce him. So he's the Dean of Valuation at NYU Stern Business School, okay? And he's this... He's this very – it's not his actual job title, but that's what he's called, right? Oh, I wish it was his job title. I think he's like a <laughs> professor of corporate finance or something like that, right? But, like, he's known as the dean of valuation, okay? And he's this very sort of polite, blunt, um, like, Indian man. And he's been studying how you value companies for decades, Okay. Uh, and like he's a quant guy from background, like by background. So he's he's happiest like doing like really gnarly spreadsheets with lots of inputs and lots of data. Okay, but he has a few things to say about valuation. So I think one of them is like there is a difference between valuing and pricing something. Okay, so and he's mostly talking about corporate valuation here, but I think it's interesting to apply it to other things. So most of the time we don't actually value things; we price them. Okay, so when he talks about valuing an asset, he says, "Okay, we need to understand what the discounted future cash flows from this asset are. So we need to understand um, if you're talking about a business, you're talking about revenues, you're talking about like your your costs. So therefore, what your margin is, how your revenues are going to grow, what's going to happen to your margins, what you're going to do around reinvestment, what your cost of capital is, so your cost of debt and equity, and what your risk is. And so with about five or six things, you can actually calculate the value of a company. There's one problem. All this lies in the future. Okay? Right, you discounted future cash flows. Okay? Mm. Like, and again, what people do is they do straight line projections, right? And he says, like, Okay, but what like for for some companies, for some assets, it's like they've been around for a long time. 
like they're kind of predictable. Like we kind of know where Procter and Gamble is going to go. Okay, we don't necessarily know what's going to happen to Facebook or Tesla or OpenAI, which is a private organization at the moment. Right. Um, so those their value lies very much in the future. And what you need is a mixture of narrative and numbers. Okay. So like the narrative is where is this where is this asset going? Okay. What is it going to do for us in the future? How is it going to change? All right. And there will be multiple stories about that asset, right? Because there are multiple possible futures. Okay. Uh, so, like, there isn't really like a scientific valuation here. There are judgments about what the future is going to hold. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of that is the numbers. So, if you tell a story, it has to be is it possible, probable, plausible? I think he's got these three kind of things right. So, first of all, like, he once said, okay, uh, an investment analyst once gave this valuation of Tesla going into the future. He said, that's very interesting. You've got them growing, sort of, you've got them tripling, you know, like, growing multiple times in size and yet they aren't going to invest any more money in building more plants to build cars i don't understand how that works (laughs) and the analyst went oh i forgot that (laughs) right so if you tell a story about the future factories and they're they're expensive exactly Mm. right so so if you tell a story about like what your asset is worth your information right it actually has to like connect to reality Mm. the story has to be internally consistent and it's like, okay, if it's going to grow in value, if people are going to find it more useful, why is that? Okay, if you're going to get more effective at, at, at like at like managing it and reducing cost, like how are you going to do that, and what's the investment you need to do that? Right. So, like the narrative and the numbers feed into each other, and again, that almost goes back to our our logos and our, and our pathos thing earlier to an extent. Right. Slightly different. Okay, so and he sort of came in it from a number side and then realized he, he needed the narrative, right? He needed the narrative parts of it, like to do what he does. Okay, so I think there's some lessons there. The other thing he talks about is the difference between valuation and pricing. Um, so when we are talking about um, valuation, we're actually sort of saying this is the value that we predict this thing will give us. Like we're, we're, we're like we're making predictions about the future, uh, whereas pricing says this is how much I can buy this asset for. And this is how much I think somebody else will buy it off me in the future. And there's like a mismatch there. Right. So that's when, so I think I can sell this asset for more than I buy it now. Mm. So again, like often you'll see companies valued by multiples of EBITDA. That's a measure of profit or by revenue, multiples of revenue. Okay. And he says, yeah, that's kind of a pricing thing. Like we're not actually like taking the time to look at the value this thing will generate. We're using a shortcut. And he says like so so evaluation like should be like your rigorous prediction of where things are go. Pricing is driven much more by by um like market movement, momentum, mood. Right. So again, the reasons that often stock prices go up and down is not because people have changed the prediction of like what they think the company's gonna do in the future. It's Struth, the economy's going down. I need to unload what I've got, right? Mm. So, I mean, a reasonable analogy we might be able to make is if we're trying to value information ma- as a as information managers, you know, we're probably going to to value it based on some form of utility to the organisation. 
Whereas if we're trying to value information, Matt, as security people, we're going to sit down and probably say something like, well, you know, what's the fine that the regulator is going to hit us with if we lose that information? And, you know, are we are we sitting here with information that would be worth, you know, $5 billion, you know, on some mm. black market for information? And so we need to protect, you know, so the information management team may be valuing this information at 50 bucks and the security teams are valuing it at $5 billion because the people who are actually going to come and try and steal that information are the people who are going to look at it and say that's worth $5 billion if we can get that. Absolutely. But I'd say there's another lesson as well, right, which is, again, focusing on, okay, so Dara Darren's perspective is people very rarely actually value things, right? They mostly price them, okay? But again, pricing is based on mood and momentum, okay? So, like, there's something here about striking while the iron is hot and never letting a good crisis go to waste, right? Because people will fluctuate in their interest and concern with the value of information in the organization. And the time to strike is when it is of high value to them, okay? Like, and that's when they feel like it's a risk that needs to be managed or there is an opportunity there to be grasped that is information related, right? So, so this is mostly outside your control, okay? But, and again, the, way, the, the, meta, the metaphor I use is, is surfing, okay? You can't make waves. Mm. Like, like waves are like caused by the moon and the sun, okay? These are cosmic forces. You have no control. What you can do is be looking out for waves and be ready to jump on your board when one hits. Oh, and and I mean, I, I always think this too for, you know, the, the, the perfect time for me to turn up with the stopwatch and say, you know, we could do some time and motion studies and see what we can do here. It is not, you know, when your organization has massive amounts of cash and is hiring people left, right and center. It's when your organization has just had its budget cut or you know, you as a team leader have just gone to your executive to say, we need, we're going to need three more people because of the the increase in, you know, stuff that we're doing this year. And they've said no, because all yeah. of a sudden that, that person is either facing a lot of very, very long days at the office, unless they can figure out a way to solve this problem without hiring people. It's not really a crisis, but it's a it's certainly something that makes a desire to work with you to reduce the amount of time that your staff are wasting, you know, looking for information more compelling. Actually, so timing matters and actually having that sensing network in place to spot things as they're hitting matters, right? So that's why it's also important to build a network in the organization, right? Because you will often hear things through that network before things are officially mm -hmm. announced and they hit, mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Right, so again, that's where going around with your records trolley cart or whatever, right? You will you will sense when people are getting anxious. You will sense where there's been a change in mood. Okay, uh, so again, a lot of this stuff, it's like there's a rational element to it, but there's a feeling element too. Mm. Mm. Um, we, need, we need to bring back the trolley. <laughs> bring back the trolley. Yeah, and put tea on it this time. Slogan. Um, the rest is that you sound like you're going back in time, but, <laughs> but there oh, is I think totally uh, as a. I mean, yeah, I've I've long thought that that a key, uh, all those things around basically moving to a more, more BA like or consultative mode is really really valuable in records and information. So yeah, bring it on. And, and yeah. if I look at if I look at the most valuable thing that 
I do, you know, I mean, I, I've been selling stuff for a long time. And if I look at the most valuable thing that I ever do with, with any organizations, I turn up and I buy people a coffee. We're going to have a coffee together. You know, it's, and you know, if I, if I, God, you know, if I, if I ever start in an organization where I'm working on site again, you know, if that ever, <laughs> if that ever happens, I mean, you know, taking people out for a coffee. Hey, let's go and grab a coffee. Talk about what you do. I mean, that to me is just about the most high. I had an, an old boss of mine um, who just used to say, you know, he, he there was a book ne- about never eat alone or something like that. And I think this guy had been doing had been doing this since that book, since about twenty years before that book had been released. And I've never seen someone who had their finger on the pulse of the organisation so well ever but he literally never ate alone like he, he he would be in the kitchen getting a tea and he would have dragged somebody around from another business unit to come and get a tea in the kitchen with him or you know it was like just an absolute master at that and i think we i mean i think that's he also he also used to tell me and this is one of these things that i've only more recently started doing you know stay in touch with people you know, be proactive about it. Make sure that you know if you, if you meet people in a in an organisation and you know you enjoy that what what they do, stay in touch with them. You know, be proactive about it. Give them a call every six months. How are you going? What what's what's happened? I mean, it's those little habits about how you make sense of the world and the and the organisation you work in. That I just think there's little nuggets of value there, and I think. Yeah, I don't know. You know, there's, there's there's something there for everybody. I think made so much harder by remote working, of course. But I mean, I totally totally agree with what you're saying, Carl. It is harder at the you know so many people working from home. But again, I think like what that ten, what that tends to do in organisations is actually create lots of silos. Like from what I've seen, it's exacerbated mm. silos in organisations. Yeah. So again, in the country of the blind, the one-eyed woman is queen. So, if you just like book in, say you devote maybe two hours a week to having four conversations, virtual conversations with people you've never met before in that organization. Hey, I'd like to hear what you do, right? Um, Most people are very happy to talk about what they do, right? And about them. Most people's favorite topic of conversation is themselves, right? And I think if you do that mindfully, because it's like I'm, I'm like Carl, right? Like, 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 like I pretty much like, you know, run, you know, run, you know, do my work like in the coffee shop, right? A lot of the time, right? But in the virtual world, we actually have to do this mindfully, and you know, and like reach out to people and have it as a discipline, okay? And like it's it's an invest again. We're coming back to value. This is an investment of time that will pay off in the future. Yeah, I I agree with what you say because I I was just working for an organisation where I was building domain models um, in order to support taxonomy and ontology development. So it meant I had to go around to every part of the business and talk to them about what they did so that I could draw up Mm. that domain model with them to understand. And they all love it. You never get you never get anybody saying, oh, I don't want to do this. This is stupid. Um, I mean, they might do to begin with, but once you start drawing it up, they're right in there. So, yes, you're right, I think. People actually do like talking about, as long as they, you know, they feel that they do have the time. Absolutely. And, and like, but, but again, it's like you'll find people on a spectrum. So some people will not return your calls. 
other people you'll have to end the call because they're going i've got to go somewhere now like they're just they're just carrying on okay and it's fine so you 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 start with the easy ones and then you'll work your way around to the harder ones eventually And it was really interesting to me with this particular organization that it was the finance director who was almost the most keen because he said, I don't think people in this business understand the business. I don't think they understand what we all do. So your domain models are really great because we can all see what everybody does. Well, you've given them the elephant, haven't you? Right. So like the story of like, like the, the, like the the blind men with the elephant. Oh, it's a, it's a tree. Oh, it's a rope. Right. Yeah. That is that is that is yeah. the experience yeah. of most people in organisations. I know Good my enough. bit. I know what my bit does. I know the people like downstream, nutstream of me, and everything else is a bit of a blur. Right. But I mean, See, how many problems in organisations yeah. are caused by that? You know, because you've got this oh. person diligently working hard and doing their little thing, and they don't really understand that you know there are three people either side of them and three people you know three people above them, three people below them in the process, or you know left and right of them, but there's this thing over here that, that, that comes in and this other thing over here that comes in another thing that's supposed to go out and they're this little piece and if they did their little bit a little bit differently, you would get a much better result. I mean, I, I've, I've worked in organisations where the, the entire problem was this idea, this, this problem of top-down. You know, everybody's doing everything top-down when the lack, of, the lack of playing these things as a team sport you know, and actually playing across the organisation was actually the thing that was causing most of the problems. And I think this actually comes to the final thing I'd like us to sort of discuss, which is the thing about intangible assets is they're intangible and they're invisible, right? And I think a lot, and hence they are out of sight, out of mind. The cynical part of me wants to say they're in the cloud. (laughs) Some of them are. Right. Um, but and I think a lot of work that's actually around managing intangible assets is making them tangible, making them visible, making them tractable, which is exactly what something like a domain model does. Mm, mm. Or a Kanban board. Maybe we all need to go off and study lean manufacturing. So There's so many different ways of making things visible out there. That's yeah. a, a brilliant point. Um, I, I mean, I've, I've seen sort of surely relatively pop-like versions of events that say that as humans, if we can picture something in our minds, then we uh, basically feel more about it. And then because we feel more about it, we can do something. But if we can't even picture the thing, then, yeah, um, yeah I mean, it's probably just coming back to those whole conversations about us being better as storytellers than as statisticians that you know perhaps this is an example of where the numbers may not be as compelling as being able to describe a thing that people can picture i, I think we also yeah. need to be like artists as well so we need to be able to represent these things mm. like in physical forms mm, definitely i am and i think like we have to be a little bit careful because i think most people have no idea how much information there is in the organizations and there is a danger of like doing a total perspective vortex on them which is a, a douglas adams hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy reference yeah, I am appreciating the, the numbers of pop culture references we've managed to pack in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But what what you say about about um, art, I think, is interesting too, because there's a there's a there's a book that I, that's on my shelf at the moment that I'm trying to find the time to read, which is called Mind in Motion. And basically, what it says is that 
the foundation of all thought is actually motion. And I think for a lot of people, I think that's why a lot of people really struggle to get their head around the digital world because they're used to things they can feel, see, touch, you know, all of those sorts of things. And then we put them in this digital world. And I know for me, you know, there was a, there was a a period of time with my masters where I was, I really, I, I went back to paper because I actually just lost the ability to, to conceptualize the work I was doing unless I had something I could see, feel and touch. I reach for a whiteboard so, so often yeah, just to try yeah. and get get my brain in order, basically, you know, just to the sense-making that you've talked about. Yeah. Well, yeah, like, whiteboards and pen and paper I use to, to start drawing out the models and, and show to people, yeah. Like, we're apes, right? Like, we, we have bodies. Like, I think as much as some people in Silicon Valley wish we didn't, Right, we fundamentally experience the world physically, and we should embrace that rather than reject it. Um, again, you got to feel it. And on that note, I reckon we should probably <laughs> wrap things up. That's a good Thing place. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. That was great. That was really interesting. So thanks again, Matt, and thanks, Carl. Thanks, Judy. Thank you. Goodbye. See you next time. <laughs>